As we come to Acts chapter 21, verse 17, we are wrapping up Paul's third missionary journey. He began to wrap it up last week, and this week it will be fully wrapped up as he finally uh, returns to Jerusalem to take to the church in Jerusalem the monetary gift that the churches throughout Macedonia and Achaia, there in you know, the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth, the gift that they had brought together to send to the church in Jerusalem, the purpose for Paul's travel there. Now, as he's uh, going and finishing this journey, we've seen all along the way, uh, especially last week, that Paul has demonstrated the courage that comes with the conviction that the gospel is true. Courage to preach the gospel in difficult circumstances. Courage to speak about Christ in situations or contexts that may not be friendly to the gospel. And now as Paul arrives in Jerusalem, where he will be arrested, as was predicted and prophesied, as he was uh, convinced by the Holy Spirit would happen to him, we'll find Paul making the first of a series of courageous defenses of the gospel to different groups over the next several chapters. What we see in Paul, in the interactions in our passage today with those who are in the church, with uh, an angry mob in the temple, and then uh, in front of that group, and also to the tribune who was giving oversight to Israel, what we'll see in all of those interactions in our passage today is an example of how spirit-filled, mature Christians conduct themselves among others. An example of how spirit-filled, mature Christians conduct themselves among others. In our text today, Paul responds with spirit-filled humility and boldness during two confrontations in his time in Jerusalem and after having uh, been arrested. We learn from Paul's example today that spirit-filled living, that Christians who are filled with the Spirit, and we know that all believers, all who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, looking to nowhere else for salvation, all of those for whom that is true have the Holy Spirit of God living in them. But actually living in light of the Holy Spirit, living a sort of Spirit-filled life, results in the liberty, as we'll see in Paul, the liberty to give up your personal privileges for the advancement of the gospel. Paul shows us that. And as we learn this from Paul's life, I would hope that we should be ready as believers today to set aside our claim, our privilege, uh, any of our rights that we might have in order to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would hope that we would be ready to set aside what we want to advance the gospel of Jesus. Let's look at our text this morning. Would you stand with me as we read Acts 21, verse 17 through 22. 21. It's a long passage, so if you need to lean on the chair in front of you or the person to your left or right, please feel free. Luke, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. 
But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment, saying uh, that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offerings presented for each one of them. And when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously, previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out uh, of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to meet them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered, them to be, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were standing with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness to, for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? 
Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him, the Lord, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And God bless this church through the reading of his word. Be seated this morning. Paul responds with spirit-filled humility and boldness in at least two different confrontations in Jerusalem. We see from his example that spirit-filled living uh, on the part of the Christian results in the liberty to give up personal rights and personal privileges for the advancement of the gospel. How does Paul show us this? Well, first of all, he shows us that spirit-filled, mature Christians humble themselves for others. Spirit-filled, mature Christians humble themselves for others. As our text begins this morning in verses 17 through 20, there Luke describes the missionaries' arrival into Jerusalem. It's not just Paul, but Luke with him and the other of their missionary cohort. And on arriving in the city, they are received gladly by the brothers and sisters in the church in Jerusalem. And they're taken the next day to the assembly of the church, where James, who's the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and all the other elders are there present. James has become sort of a senior elder in Jerusalem, and he has been this senior elder since at least shortly before the council that we read about in Acts chapter 15. And Paul's time with the elders there in Jerusalem as he closes out his third missionary journey and meets the church there is spent recounting, as Luke says, one by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. You can almost imagine Paul, can't you, sitting with these brothers in a room talking about how in, in uh, uh, Philippi the Lord called these Gentiles to himself and there was this guy and that guy and oh yeah, don't forget about Lydia, the dyer of purple cloth. And then when we were in Corinth, there was a lot of trouble there. It's kind of a hot mess of a church, but God was calling lots of lost people to himself. You can imagine Paul telling all of these stories of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ there in the middle of this church of now Jewish believers. And Paul's detailed account of all that has happened all throughout his missionary journey is for far more than just giving a missionary report. It's for far more than just saying these are the things that happened. The purpose of him talking about all of these Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus is to say, church in Jerusalem, the gospel is still for Gentiles. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. This news, Luke tells us, that the gospel is still for Gentiles and that that is demonstrated all throughout Paul's ministry is received with gladness by the church in Jerusalem. That's a very good thing. It's a very good thing. With gladness, rejoicing, they praise God together. Then at the end of verse 20 through verse 26, after Paul gives his report, James and the others respond to Paul. Verse 20, the second part of verse 20, notes that many thousands of Jews in Jerusalem have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul has told them of the many thousands, hundreds of those who are Gentiles that have come to the faith. And now uh, James relates to Paul, "Hey, hey man, don't forget about the thousands of Jews that have come to the faith here in the city as well. That is also good news. 
But James has said that all of these many thousands of Jews in Jerusalem that have come to the faith are also zealous for the law, the law of Moses, the, the, the instructions that we get in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, their zeal, their enthusiasm for the law, uh, for some may seem like a step backward in, uh, in the lives of these now Jewish Christians. But it's not really a step backward, as though they were trying to fulfill the law or keep the law in order to be righteous before God. They already know that their righteousness is, comes to them by faith in Jesus, but they are Jews who love the law and the traditions that God has given to them. Rather, it seems that their zeal is in regard to keeping the Jewish traditions in a Christ-centered way. Thus, they have not exchanged Jewishness for Christianity, but they have become fully orbed, fully composed, well-rounded Jewish Christians. People who love Jesus, who have faith in Him as Messiah, but also are still tied to their cultural backgrounds and their cultural traditions. And this is not a bad thing, this text shows us. The problem, however is that some Jews, perhaps these Jews from Asia that we read about in verse 27 of chapter 21, some Jews have come into Jerusalem and begun spreading rumors about Paul. That as Paul goes out to the different cities of the Gentiles and others throughout the world, when he teaches the gospel and preaches the gospel and calls even Jews to believe, uh, the rumor that is spreading is that Paul is saying to the Jews who are now Christians, don't do any of the law. Throw the law away. Don't circumcise your children. Don't do anything that God has called you to be faithful to in him. Only just trust Jesus and leave the rest of it behind. Uh, Trash your Jewish heritage is the rumor that they're saying, the rumor that they're spreading about Paul. In actuality, none of this is true. Paul isn't going out and teaching these things. Paul isn't going out and teaching Jewish people not to circumcise their children uh, in obedience to God and as a commitment to raise their children to know and to fear the Lord. In fact, Paul himself took Timothy, the adult, and had him circumcised in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, in order to make evangelism to the Jews more effective. Nevertheless, James is fearful that having heard of Paul's arrival, those who have been disturbed by these rumors might be thrown into a crisis of conscience here in Jerusalem. We have a problem, Paul. There are rumors about you that we know aren't true, and we need to deal with them so we don't fracture the church. So how does James propose to solve this solution? Verses 23 through 25 tell us. In order to undermine these rumors, to shed light on the truth of what is going on, James suggests that Paul take with him four of the brothers, four of the Jewish believers who are in the church in Jerusalem, who are under a Nazarite vow, to take those four to pay their expenses, to have their heads shaved, which I would have gladly done for free, (laughs) to have their heads shaved and to pay for the necessary offerings that they'll need to present at the temple to complete their vow. Doing this, James no, James says, it, it, it will certainly show Paul that you are not opposed to the law. If you'll take these guys who are under a vow and you'll pay their expenses to complete the vow, that'll deal with all of the rumors that have been spread about your undoing of the law. And the good news is that Paul is not opposed to doing this. Because Paul is not opposed to the law of God in the Old Testament insofar as following the law does not replace his allegiance to Christ and his faith in Jesus as Savior. 
As for the Gentiles, however, so you might be wondering, okay, this is what we do for the Jews, but what about the, the Gentile believers? What do we do with them? Do we now have to go back and, and, and have them be circumcised and they need to live their life under the law like these Jewish brothers want to? No, because as for the Gentiles, James says, he goes back to his, the letter that they sent to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 15. He says, all that we ask of the Gentiles is not to eat meat that's sacrificed to idols, not to consume the blood of animals, to keep themselves from sexual immorality, and they'll be fine. We have no issue with these Gentile brothers. Paul's response in verse 26 to James's solution to dealing with these rumors about Paul's uh, overturning of the law is for him to gladly submit to the elder's idea and to make haste the next day to the temple to begin his ritual uh, purification process from having been traveling through Gentile country, a process that would take him seven days. Paul's submission to the wisdom and request, his humility toward the elders at Jerusalem, demonstrates his unceasing personal humble-making in the Holy Spirit for the sake of the gospel and for the reputation of Jesus. There is no level to which Paul will not humble himself in order to protect the gospel and the consciences of those who are following Jesus. Christ, having fulfilled the law, has made his children free from the law. We know this. But he's also given them liberty to obey those lawful traditions that are not contrary to the atonement for sins found in Christ alone. What Paul is doing in Acts chapter 21 in submitting himself to the law for the sake of the conscience of these Jewish Christians is demonstrating exactly what he wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9. Turn with me in your Bibles just a few pages uh, uh, later to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. They're speaking about matters of conscience and liberty in, in Christ. Paul says this to the church in Corinth, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. This is precisely what he's doing in Acts 21. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, he's speaking about the law of Moses. I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. We learn from Paul that spirit-filled, mature Christians humble themselves for others. Christian, you today, reading uh, about Paul and his actions here, his life inspired, filled, led by the Holy Spirit, know this, that mature Christians set aside their rights so others can see the gospel. Mature Christians set aside their rights so that others can see the gospel. In the current situation, Paul would gain nothing but pride by arguing for his right not to follow Jewish tradition. Paul has an argument uh, against going and participating in this Nazarite vow with these brothers that have taken it. Paul could say, I'm free in Christ not to do this. I don't have to go with them, James. Don't you know? 
But the end of that argument would only serve Paul's own pride, his only self-righteousness. It would actually bind in an unnecessary way the consciences of those Jewish brothers who feel like in being obedient to Christ they want to take a vow, a Nazarite vow, to devote themselves for a period of time to study of God's word and prayer and dedication to him. And Paul, if he were to argue against taking that, that vow, he would be saying to them, no, it's not good to do these things that God previously said are good to do. Instead, Paul humbles himself, and he goes along with these men to the temple. He supports their liberty. He sets aside his own liberty in Christ not to take a vow, and supports their liberty in Christ to take a vow of devotion and thanksgiving to God. And instead of growing in pride by arguing against uh, being under the law, he instead gains a stronger reputation and a better audience among the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Paul sets aside his personal privileges so that others might see and hear the gospel more clearly. Dear friend, what personal privileges might you need to consider holding loosely for the sake of the gospel? What things do you need to loosen your grip on so that others can see the truth of Christ in your life? To hear it in your speech. To gain a broader hearing. Perhaps you need to set aside your political expression on social media for the sake of the consciences of other believers. Maybe, brothers and sisters, you need to hold your tongue on Facebook for the sake of of the consciences of other brothers and sisters. Hold your tongue on Facebook for the sake of preserving a gospel uh, witness on social media. It may be that you need to prepare your heart and mind to, uh, if the Lord leads you to travel overseas or, or even among a different people group here in New Mexico or somewhere else in the country, that you need to be prepared to dress according to local customs when you travel on mission to other places. Ladies, are you willing to, even though you are free in Christ, not to wear a head covering if you were to go to a Middle Eastern country? Are you, because you know you're free in Christ, not to wear the head covering, willing to wear the head covering for the sake of gaining a hearing for the gospel among women who, and men who will respect you more because you do? Would you be willing to set aside your liberty in Christ? This is a hard one to drink black coffee or tea so that you can more easily share the gospel with a Mormon? I love coffee. I would love to invite Mormons over to my house for a cup of coffee to share the gospel with them. But that would be an automatic deterrent to them. Not because they are believers, but because their consciences would be conflicted by what they see. Christian, are you willing to set aside whatever you need to set aside Uh, as long as you are being faithful to Christ so that others can hear the gospel, see the gospel more clearly. We could run down a whole laundry list of examples here. The, the, The possibilities are endless on this matter, but the same principle applies. Followers of Jesus who are sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in their lives are ready in Christ to accommodate the conscience of any so that the gospel can be seen and heard more clearly. You have every right in Christ to set aside your rights so others can hear the gospel more clearly. Secondly, we see in Paul that spirit-filled, mature Christians endure personal injustice. They endure personal injustice. 
as Paul finishes out the days of ritual purification that he needs before he can go back into the temple with these four brothers, there are some Jews from Asia, uh, Luke tells us, perhaps from the city of Ephesus, where Paul uh, previously ministered. Some Jews from Asia see Paul in the temple with these other four brothers, and they seize him, and they start a riot. They start beating him also by accusing Paul of teaching disobedience to the law of Moses and to the temple and to the people of God, and even Worst, they say, he had the gall to bring a Gentile into the temple. There was in uh, around the outside of the temple in that day a place where Gentiles could go called the court of the Gentiles. And there was a wall between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women where Jewish men and women could then enter. And in the wall were have been excavated bricks uh, on which were inscribed, Gentiles enter here on penalty of death. These Jewish brothers have the tenacity to accuse Paul of bringing Gentiles into the temple complex, of doing, of committing a crime worthy of his own death. Now, it's not true that Paul did this. It's not true that Paul brought Gentiles into the temple. But it is true that Paul has taught things about the gospel that are contrary to the assumptions that Jews have made about it. Paul has taught what we call the leveling effect of the gospel. That is, the gospel removes all division between Jews and Gentiles. Again, neither of these accusations, none of the accusations that uh, that, that the Jews are leveling against Paul are true. Luke tells us that they're not true. He says that their accusations are not based on facts, but on assumptions and associations. So they're like, whoa, we saw Paul walking around the city with Trophimus a while, a couple days ago. Trophimus, that guy from Ephesus, we're certain he brought him in the temple. He must have brought him into the temple. Uh, Paul definitely did it. Let's kill him. So the news of what's going on in Jerusalem, there's now this riot, Paul's being beaten, news of what's going on uh, outside the temple eventually makes its way to the tribune, whose name we learn in Acts chapter 23 is Claudius Lysias. The tribune was a commander of a thousand Roman troops, and he was the primary peacekeeper in Jerusalem. It was his responsibility to maintain order in the city on behalf of the governor, Felix, who actually resided in Caesarea. Now, once the crowd sees the tribune with his centurions and his soldiers coming uh, toward the steps of the temple, they stop beating Paul. They have at least some respect for the uh, ruling uh, authorities there. Lysias, the the, the tribune, then has Paul arrested. He has him detained while he tries to ascertain what is going on here. Why Why are all these people beating you up? Could, could be that Lysias has Paul arrested for his own safety more than uh, out of uh, accusation or intent to put him on trial. But assuming Paul to somehow be a potential threat because of the response of the people, Lysias has him bound in two chains, Luke says. That means bound hand and foot. And not being able to get a consistent answer from the crowd as to what the commotion is all about. Remember, Luke said some were saying one thing and some were saying another thing. The, the mob has, has grown to such a fever pitch that nobody even knows why they're fighting. Not being able to get a consistent answer about the commotion in the city, Lysias has Paul removed from the crowd for his safety and so that everyone can just calm down and we can get to brass tacks. Eventually, Paul himself will have to be carried by the soldiers to keep the mob from tearing him limb from limb. And what is most interesting to me, and I think should be most interesting to us in these verses today, is what we do not find Paul doing. 
What we do not see Paul doing. We do not find Paul, while he is being accused of all sorts of untrue things, shouting back in personal defense. As Paul is being accosted and assaulted, we do not find him throwing punches in return. As people are laying all manner of nasty and unfounded allegations against him, Paul does not revile them. In all this, Paul endures personal injustice. His actions are the perfect example of what he himself would write to the church in Galatia. In Galatians 5, and 23, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Dear friends, all of the fruit of the Spirit is present in Paul as he endures this injustice. Paul teaches us by his life lived in the Spirit that mature Christians are known by their forbearance and restraint when being treated poorly. Mature Christians are known by their forbearance. That may be a foreign word to you because in America we're not taught to forbear with others. Forbearance means you endure hardship for the sake of just of enduring hardship, for the sake of your own integrity. You forbear things. You are patient with things. You show restraint when you are being treated poorly. We noted last week that Paul was not afraid to be arrested. He was not afraid to be persecuted for his faith in Christ. He had courage because of the truth of the gospel to be arrested and persecuted, even to die for Christ. In his heart, Paul had prepared himself for this, the call of God on his life to die for the gospel. But Paul also demonstrates in his restraint in this passage, in this instance, he, restra- he, he demonstrates in his long suffering under false accusation the confidence that he has in God who judges all things justly. Amen. Paul says, I don't need to take care of myself. God is just. He will do what is right. Let them beat me. Let them accuse me. Let them say all manner of untrue things about me. It's fine. God's got this. What about you, Christian? When you come across insults of Christians on social media, do you respond in kind or do you respond with prayer? Is your desire to imitate Christ stronger than your desire to win an argument? When you run into conflict, when you run into, when you have friction because of your faith in Christ, do you want to be more like Christ in that moment or do you want to be right? Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 19 through 20, This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called For to this you have been called, Christian, to endure injustice for the sake of gospel. For to this you have been called, Peter says, because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges 
justly. The Spirit of God is all over Paul, who endures injustice for the sake of the gospel, who forbears with others in their false accusations, who shows restraint when others are not. When others are destroying his physical body, Paul restrains himself for the sake of the gospel. Christian, do you consider yourself a mature Christian? Do you want to be a mature Christian? Then learn to live by the Spirit, to forbear and be restrained when others treat you poorly. Thirdly, Paul teaches us, shows in his life, that spirit-filled, mature Christians magnify the risen Jesus. Spirit-filled, mature Christians humble themselves for others. They endure personal injustice for the sake of the gospel. And they magnify the risen Jesus. Before being carried away from the crowd, Paul asks the tribune, Lysias, if he can speak to the crowd. Hey, let me uh, have just a word of defense in front of these people, if I may. Now, he says this in Greek to the tribune, and the tribune was likely expecting Paul to speak in Aramaic or maybe some other dialect, and he speaks in good Greek. The, our English text doesn't uh, 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 translate this very well for us, but in the original language, Luke speaks about uh, Paul's Greek as, as being one with eloquence. And so Lysias is like, oh, this, you, you speak good Greek, I'll listen to you. So he's surprised by this, and, and it causes him to ask the question about Paul's identity. Uh, aren't you, Lysias asks Paul, aren't you that Egyptian guy who came out of the desert? You led that rebellion of 4,000 people. You said you were going to destroy the, the walls of Jerusalem, like uh, Jericho. And then, uh, and then Felix, the governor, brought a bunch of troops down. They like, uh, killed a whole bunch of you guys and sent you back off in the wilderness. Isn't that who you are? Paul says, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not me. I'm not that guy. I'm a Jew from Tarsus. I'm not a rebel Egyptian trying to overthrow the city of Jerusalem. I'm a Jew from Tarsus, a major city. Maybe you've heard of it. Apparently, Paul's response there is enough for the tribune to question what's going on a little bit more and and to allow Paul then to speak to the crowd. Now, Paul, who is wise, he's a smart guy, also led by the Holy Spirit. Though he asks the crowd to hear then his defense, he does not defend himself. He asks the crowd to hear his defense, but he does not defend himself. Do you see that in verse, um, excuse me, verse, uh, I got to go further back. Verse uh, beginning in verse three. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. Paul says, brought up in the city, educated at the field. Nope, got to go further back. I'm sorry, you guys. Chapter twenty-two, verse one. This is how (laughs) this is how Paul addresses the crowd. Brothers and sisters, hear the defense I now make before you. Hear my defense. But Paul doesn't defend himself. He defends Jesus. What Paul relates to the mob that day is what we've already known and been acquainted with from Acts chapter 9, Paul's own uh, uh, conversion to faith in Christ. Paul relates to the mob that day a presentation, not of, his, uh, not of all the evidence for his innocence, but all the evidence of what Christ has done for him. Paul's defense is not a plea for mercy from the people, and neither is it a condemnation of the people for their false accusations and persecution of the church of Jesus. Instead, what Paul says to the people, 
What he tells them is his own story of his upbringing and education at the feet of Gamaliel, of his confrontation by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul relates to them again of his conversion to faith in Christ with the help of Ananias of Damascus. Paul tells the people of his specific calling by Jesus to take the gospel to the Gentiles. In all that Paul says, I encourage you to read his testimony again closely this week. In all that Paul says, he does not make Paul the hero, he makes Jesus the hero. Notice in Paul's testimony, it is Jesus of Nazareth who is the risen Lord. Jesus, who is the head of the church and inextricably united to the church so that to persecute the people of Christ is to persecute Christ himself. It is Jesus, Paul says, who calls and appoints believers to be saved through faith and to be his witnesses. It is Jesus who saves sinners when they repent of their sin and trust in him. It is Jesus who has authority to direct his servants. And it is Jesus who cares deeply for the peoples of the world who do not yet know him such that he sends his servant Paul to share the gospel with them. Paul has a wonderful way, doesn't he? Paul has a wonderful way of every time he has opportunity to speak about himself, he does so in a way that makes Jesus the hero, Jesus the center, Jesus the one on whom our eyes and hearts are called to be focused upon. Would that we all would be like Paul in that way. When asked to speak about ourselves or tell a story or Give a personal example that when people hear us speak, they only see, they only hear Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. I once knew of a pastor who had engraved on his pulpit, Sir, we would see Jesus. So it would be a constant reminder to the servant of God who preaches every Sunday to his church not to preach himself, not to magnify himself, not to show how charismatic he is, how capable of a communicator God may have gifted him to be, the grasp of the word that he has. He needed the constant regular reminder, show them Jesus or else shut up and sit down. Dear friends, Jesus must be the hero of our lives. Jesus must be the center of our testimony. Jesus must be the center of our gospel presentation. Jesus must be the center of our worship in the church, of our Bible studies in small groups. He must be the center of our families, of our marriage. Jesus must be the center of all things because he is the center of all things. Brothers and sisters, learn from Paul that mature Christians make Jesus the center and hero of their lives. Mature Christians make Jesus the center and the hero of their lives. Isn't it odd that for Paul, this just seems to be second nature? Everywhere he goes, every time he's asked to speak, everything he talks about is Jesus. Even when he talks about himself, he's talking about Jesus. Isn't it odd that this is just what he does, that when the chips are down and and his life is on the line... That he's not the least bit concerned with getting himself off the hook, but only concerned with making Jesus look great? Where does this come from? Again, we ask about Paul. Who is this guy? How does he do this? He does this, friends, by being totally and completely submitted to the leadership, the guidance of the Holy Spirit in his life. That's how Paul does it. Ask yourself the question, how, how, how do I live my life? How do I speak in such a way about everything that when people hear me speak, when people see the way I live, that they only see Jesus? How do I do that? 
You do it by submitting your life to the Holy Spirit. Really submitting your life to the movement, the direction, the indwelling Holy Spirit within you, Christian. Here's the flip side of that. If you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ, you're not committed to Him, you can't live this life. Because the Holy Spirit only lives in the hearts of those who have made Christ Lord of their life, who have submitted to Christ's kingship. If you submit to Christ's kingship, you will have the Holy Spirit in you to lead, guide, direct, to teach you, to empower you, to be a witness to Christ. But apart from faith in Jesus, you do not have the Holy Spirit within you. How does Paul do it? By being totally and completely submitted to the Holy Spirit in his life. Luke, in his own gospel, relates this uh, teaching from Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12. Jesus says this, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Catch this. And when they bring you before synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, Jesus says, this Jesus is saying before he's even been crucified, by the way, to his disciples, saying to his disciples, they will bring you before synagogue rulers and and other dignitaries and other authorities. When they do this, do not be anxious, Jesus says, about how you should defend yourself or what you should say for the holy spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say how does paul give such bold witness for jesus christ in the face of certain death time after time after time after time because he submitted to the holy spirit in his life he's not afraid about what he'll say because he knows god will give him what to say through the holy spirit of god living in him paul has confidence that what he will say in front of the people will be exactly what god needs for him to say desires for him to say in that moment and what does the holy spirit lead paul to say in his defense that day isn't jesus awesome bound in chains hand and foot i guess i shouldn't raise my hands right because paul isn't jesus awesome What a contradiction. Paul beaten and bloodied and bound in chains saying, isn't Jesus awesome? Mercy. Dear friends, Paul is so clearly following the leadership of the Holy Spirit in all that takes place in these chapters of Acts today. But most especially, he's following the leadership of the Holy Spirit in his magnification of Jesus. Beaten and bloodied, bound in chains, all that he can do is talk about how great Jesus is. Christian, how do you approach the prospect of telling other people about Jesus? Do you worry? Are you anxious? Are you concerned about what you might say or that you might look foolish? Do you fear that you might be insulted for your faith or worse? Christian, if that is you today, if you are hesitant about sharing your faith because you don't know, you're hesitant to magnify Jesus in daily conversations with lost people because you don't know what's going to happen... Know today that you have the same Holy Spirit within you that Paul had within him. The Holy Spirit of God will give you wisdom. Jesus promised it. Wisdom to speak what needs to be said in the time of need. Christian, don't worry. Don't be anxious. But do be prepared. Paul was ready at any moment to magnify Jesus. Paul was ready to do so by telling his own story as a way of of getting others to see the gospel. And Paul's story is profoundly focused upon Jesus. 
his own identity, the identity of Christ, and and Christ's authority to save. So when you tell your story, Christian, about how Christ changed your life, do you include the same things that Paul did? When someone says to you, John, what's different about your life? You're just, something's odd about you in a good way. Tell me about that. When you have opportunity, Sharon, to tell your story with somebody else, are you sure to include that Jesus is Lord of all creation? In telling your story about how Jesus changed your life, are you sure to include that Jesus died for sins and was raised again? Are you certain to note that you are a sinner and that all people are sinners, that you have rebelled against a holy God, done things your way, not his way, on purpose? Have you knew, do you note that you're a sinner and that sometime in your life God was gracious enough to reveal to you the depth of your sin and your need for a Savior? Do you share that with people? Dear friend, do not leave out of your testimony that God changed your heart to believe the truth of Jesus Christ and that He has assisted you in walking in repentance from sin. That's what salvation is about. It's about going from a life of being a slave to sin to now being a child of God an heir of righteousness, a follower of Christ, a gospel, that says, a gospel that says to the world, Jesus changed my life and now my family stuff is better. Like, and that's it? It's no gospel at all. The gospel is not the gospel. No gospel is the gospel apart from the testimony to the lordship of Christ, his death for sins, his necessary death for sins, and his resurrection from the dead. Absent that, any news we have for anyone about why our lives are good is not good news. So be prepared to tell the story of how Jesus has saved you from sin and death and hell. Talk about all those dirty words, sin, death, hell, that supposedly we're not supposed to talk about with non-believers. Talk about with them how, how, uh, prepare yourself uh, to talk with them about how Jesus is the hero and center of your life. He's not, Jesus isn't, dear friends, Jesus is not the hero in the center of my life because he helped me to handle my finances better. Jesus is not the hero in the center of my life because he called me to a job as a pastor. Jesus is not the hero and center of my life because he gave me a a lovely, wonderful wife and three beautiful children. Jesus is not the hero and center of my life because I live in America. Jesus is the hero and center of my life because when my soul was damned, he rescued it from hell. He gave me faith to believe that he died for me and rose again. He is the hero and the center of my story because he literally changed my life. I was on a trajectory. Dear friends, you were on a trajectory, you who trust Jesus, of of spending an eternity in hell separated from God. Don't forget that. Don't forget where in your own efforts your life was headed until Jesus became the hero. Until Jesus stepped in. Until God gave you faith to believe and gave you grace to be saved by trusting in Christ. Make Jesus the hero. Make Jesus the center. And dear friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus this way, the best way to respond to what you've heard this morning is to submit your life to Christ. To say, Jesus, you are Lord. All that I've done I've done for myself and in my own power, in my own efforts. I've been trying to get my, my way to God, find my way to God on my own. It's not working. It hasn't worked. I need someone else to do it for me. Dear friends, that someone else is Jesus and only him. 
when you trust Christ, when you turn from your sin and turn in obedience to him, God promises that you will be saved, that you will enter into a new kind of life, the kind of life that Paul lives, led by the Holy Spirit, enabled and empowered to make Jesus the center of your life, to endure personal injustice for the sake of Christ, who is our rescuer, to humble yourself for the sake of others so that they might know the gospel that has changed your life more clearly, to see it better, to hear it with greater definition. Dear friend, don't leave here this morning without Jesus being the center and hero of your life. And that means you too, Christian. Don't leave here this morning with anyone else as your hero, as the one that you depend upon, as the center and focus of your life other than Jesus. Let's pray.